Hello everyone, welcome back to my podcast. This is the seventh episode and we're talking about a really interesting topic, NLP meta model, and I'm going to explain what it is in a minute. And some coaching questions that I use with my clients that are extremely effective and that will change the way you think. So let's get straight into it. During this podcast, you can ask questions. I want to remind you of that and you can hop in the call. So be brave and do that if you have any questions. So translated, the meta model would be kind of like an overview of how people use their language. It's an analysis of the actual meaning that people give to their words. So first of all, I want to tell you how this helps me. When I talk to someone, I don't only listen to their words, or if it's in an email or a text, I don't only read the words that they tell me. That person, without knowing, gives me at least three times more information than the words that they are using. And I talked in another episode about the mental map and how we see the world. And we have a conscious and unconscious mind a structure that is very profound inside of us and one that is shallow. When an event happens in our life, the profound structure remembers absolutely every detail of the event. For instance, you are bitten by a dog, let's say. So the profound structure remembers everything from the colors of the wear of the clothes you are wearing, the temperature outside, the color of the dog, the texture of their fur, every single detail. The shallow structure is what you can transmit about what happened, about the event that happened, the fact that the dog beat you. For example, when you tell someone else about your experience with a dog that has beaten you a few years ago, you omit and you distort all the information. You don't remember everything and every detail. So what we remember from the actual experience that happened is a very small percentage of the actual experience. And there are three main filters that we use when we think about any experience. And today we're going to learn how to push these filters away. So think about these three filters as three pairs of colored glasses that distort your reality. And every one of these filters has other smaller, smaller filters inside of them, like subdivisions. And I want to give you an example. Think about a happy experience that you had in your life. It can be, it can be anything, like when you went to the seaside or an experience you had with your partner, your lover, whatever experience you have. Now that you think about it, I want you to tell me, what were you wearing? What was your partner wearing? What were the people around you wearing? What kind of music was playing if there was any music? Were you outside, inside? How, what, was the, what was the temperature outside? How many birds passed by you? I want you to tell me every word of the conversation that you had. What was every smell that you felt that day? All these things were part of the actual event that happened and all of them influenced your event. So when we think about some things, we filter all the information through these three filters. And then we talk about this information. For example, tell me 
an event, tell, tell this event to someone else and see how little of the information you actually tell them compared to the actual event. It, it can be as little as 1% of the actual event. So I hope this makes sense. So the meta model teaches people how to communicate, teaches you how to push those filters away, as I said, and have access to the actual experience. Because otherwise, they have access to only 1% of the information that was distorted several times and what we actually end up talking about after an event. Um, this is also an extremely valuable tool for coaching because it allows someone by asking questions to return to the actual experience. For example, someone comes to you and says that, let's say they can't ride a bicycle, but they omit to tell you that they were three years old when they fell off the bicycle. And that's when they reached the conclusion that they can't ride the bicycle. You see? So... It was Socrates, the philosopher, that discovered some questions that if you ask them, they will help a person to return to the real experience that they had. And our shallow structure is the way we think about an event. But the deep structure is why we think this way. What happened for me to think of in this way? The deep structure contains all of my experiences and every detail of them that makes up who I am today. But we don't remember all of these details and why we are actually like this. So these three filters or these three categories are distortions, generalizations, and deletions. So deletions are... What does my mind, what in deletions, my mind deletes a lot of information. In generalization, I take a piece of information and I replicate it. So for example, someone says to me, all women leave me. In that mo moment, I know that the shallow structure is talking, not the deep structure. So I ask them, how many women left you? And they go, two women left me. You see, so they generalize to all women leave me when actually only two women in his life left him. And the third one is distortions. This is when you make an elephant out of a fly. So let's go into detail into each one of them. So first, generalizations. There are three types of generalizations. And they suck because they give me the impression that if something happens once, it will happen every time. So first we have universal quantifiers. So these are complicated names, but I'm going to break them down. It just makes it smart. Uh, it makes it sound smart, but they're actually very easy. Don't worry. So universal generalizers are things such as every time, always, never, everyone, no one, like she never listens to me or you always forget to take out the trash. Does that sound familiar to you? So why do we use them? Because if I said something like, um, my work colleagues treat me badly only from time to time, I wouldn't be such a big victim. It wouldn't sound as dramatic as my colleagues always treat me like shit. So if you say no one loves me, it's more dramatic than 
three people don't love me. This and all the other filters that we're going to talk about are cognitive errors. The person that uses them doesn't use their mental structure appropriately. When you hear someone that you have rapport with um, saying these generalizations, ask them, no one loves you? No, I never take out the trash? Like, give me an example of a person that doesn't love you. So break down their generalization or all this cognitive errors that I'm going to talk about, I want you to do auto-coaching with them as well. So when you hear them yourself, using them yourself, like no one loves me, ask yourself, okay, no one, am I sure? Like, let's see who doesn't love me and let's see, are there any exceptions? Like, you know, uh, men can think, oh, all women are unreliable. Are you sure all women? Maybe three women in your life that you met are unreliable, but not all of them. Or all men are pigs. Maybe five men that you met are pigs, but three of them are actually great or 10 of them are great. So when you catch yourself or other people that you love making these generalizations, try to bring a counterexample. The second uh, generalization is model operator of possibility. I told you, they sound fancy, but they're not that complicated. So these are things like, I can't, or it's impossible, I won't. I can't tell him the truth. And the questions that you use here are, what would happen if you did? What is the thing that you're actually afraid of? How many times did you try? What are you actually trying to tell me? Did you check if you can't? So for instance, someone says, I can't do this project. Okay, I understand that you can't. But if you could, what would be the next steps that you would take? And they go, oh, well, I could go talk to that person and invest my money in this and do this and that. So when someone says that, when someone says to you, I can't do something, Reply by saying, if you could, what would you do? This makes them roll the event in their mind. So when someone imagines that they're doing something, the chances of them actually doing that thing increase with 50% because their mind already did it. For instance, to give you an example and of the power of our mind, uh, is Roger Bannister that broke the four-minute mile barrier in 1954. And he did it by constantly rehearsing the event in his mind. And by doing this, he created vivid references that became a command to his nervous system, which helped him achieve the result. Another uh, question that you can ask them is, what stops you from doing that thing? So the reason why they believe they can do something is because there's an obstacle in their mind. So try to find that obstacle and question it. Another component of this is when someone says, I can't, is that they're not taking responsibility. So the third question you can ask them is, what are you actually afraid of? And when they tell you, ask them, what's the worst thing that can happen? Okay, so someone says, I'm afraid of doing public speaking. 
And this was actually one of my fears and this is how I overcame this. So this is why this is extremely valuable. So I'm afraid of doing public speaking. So I asked myself, what is the worst thing that that can happen? So, you know, I thought, okay, so the worst thing is I go on stage and I just block, like I forget everything and I just stand there awkwardly in front of an audience. And then I asked myself, okay, so if that happens, what will I do after? Well, I'll just stay there and tell everyone that I forgot and feel a bit ashamed, get off stage and maybe continue my speech if I remember it. Or or if not, you know, I'll just get off stage. I'll feel awkward for one or two days, but then I'll just move on. So, you know, having kind of like a plan B or knowing that, okay, this is the worst scenario. And if this happens, I'm get, I'm going to get over it. It's not that bad after all. I'm going to survive because a lot of people feel like they're going to die after the worst case scenario happens. This is when you will gain the courage to do that thing. So for me, with public speaking, my worst fear actually happened in the past. So after I think it was my second or third speech, I was in front of an audience and I was having the speech and I just forgot everything. I had a huge lapsus and I just stood there in front of the audience for about three minutes. I didn't know what to say. I almost started crying because I was so ashamed of myself for forgetting. And after that happened, you know, I told everyone, okay, so I kind of forgot. And the people were so understanding They were so nice. And after a while, I was just like, okay, so let me see where, what can I talk about? What was, where did I leave my ideas? And I just continued. And I found out that my worst fear actually wasn't that bad. And I went over it. So ever since that day, I wasn't as afraid of public speaking as I was before, because my worst fear happened. I saw I didn't die. It was okay. People still accepted me. So this is why asking yourself, okay, what is realistically the worst thing that can happen? Okay, moving on to the third generalization is model operators of necessity. So these are words such as I should, I must, I have to, I shouldn't, I I don't have to, I need to, it is necessary. So must or I have to is something that we all hate to hear because it creates pressure and guilt and it doesn't take into account our desires. So the question that you use to combat this, I have to or must, is what would you do if you didn't have to? I have to do my homework, okay? Just an example. What would you happen if you don't if you don't have if you didn't have to? What would happen if you didn't do that thing that you have to? Or who says that you have to? Because people say, say I have to to things that they don't actually have to do. Maybe it would be good or nece- necessary sometimes or it would be good to do them, but they don't have to. You don't have to do anything. Yes, maybe there will be consequences. But This word must or have to adds pressure to us. And when someone uses it, um, it covers the pressure that they feel and the fact that they don't actually want to do that thing. So when someone says, oh, I have to stay with my brother, I understand immediately that they don't want to do that thing. So even you, I invite you, instead of using the word, I must, I must go to work, I have to do that project to say, to replace it with, 
I want to or it is necessary to do that. And because actually you don't have to, you have to understand this as well. This was the less generalization. So let's move on to distortions. The first distortion that people make is mind reading, claiming to know someone's internal state. For example, let's say a distortion, like a mind reading is saying, you don't like me. How do you know that I don't like you? So this recovers the source of the information. So distortion, mind reading is the sensation that you know what the person is thinking about. I know you want to make me suffer, or I know you want to hurt me. You don't pay attention. I know she's cheating. I know he's doing that. How do you know? And a lot of people reply to this by saying, I feel it. So what's the problem here? You can't read people's minds. That's the problem. So ask, how do you know that? What evidence do you have? You say you're not paying attention. How do you know I'm not paying attention? What is your evidence for that? So when, so as I said, a lot of times people say, I feel it. So, you know, I ask them, so please explain, how does that feel? Is it like a feeling of hunger or, you know, how do you know you're not confusing the feeling of hunger with feeling that they're cheating on you? How exactly does it feel when someone else wants to hurt you, for instance? And that's when people usually get stuck. And this I feel is actually very bad for our self-development because you can imagine whatever scenario in your mind without any realistic evidence and justify it by saying, I feel. And a lot of people say it's intuition. But actually, it has nothing to do with intuition. When you say, I feel, it has like 99.99% of the times, it doesn't have anything to do with intuition. It's just an assumption. Intuition only happens in certain contexts. It only appears when you're in a state of flow, when you're completely immersed in an activity and your mind is completely calm. But people use I feel whenever they want to, even though they're not in that state. You know, they can be at work and say, you know, I feel like my boss wants to um, kick me out or something. And... To be honest, a very small amount of people are actually connected to their intuition because being connected to your subconscious mind where intuition comes from requires you to love and accept yourself unconditionally. It requires you to accept your shadow and to explore the good and bad parts of you. And as long as you see yourself as bad or you're afraid of certain sides of you, which are in the shadow, you cannot access your subconscious mind. So your subconscious mind is like a cave that hides a lot of things, dark things as well. And if you're afraid to explore that darker side of yourself, or if you deny your anger, your thoughts, your fantasies, the bad, let's say, side of you, um, you will never be able to connect to your subconscious mind. And that's where intuition, creativity, all of your emotions, your thoughts come from. But this is a very, very complex topic, and I'll talk about it in another episode. And also, when people say, I feel, it's usually just a thought. 
it's not a kinesthetic sensation. They don't actually feel it in their body. It's just a thought. So you don't actually feel anything. You're just thinking about something. All right. The second distortion is cause and effect. So this is where the cause is wrongly put outside the self. You make me sad. How does what I'm doing cause you to choose to feel sad would be the answer or the question that you would do to that. So this distortion creates the sensation that what someone does or someone says influences you. And I can hear some thoughts asking right now, but isn't it like that? And by the way, I'm reading your mind right now. So I'm using a distortion that I was talking about, mind reading. So how did that person influence you against your will? Asking this question will make you realize that you are responsible for how you feel, not other people. And you have the capacity to influence how you feel. So an example of cause and effect, your voice irritates me. The weather outside makes me sad. So taking two things that are not related, right? Like the weather makes me sad or her voice irritates me or what you're telling me makes me upset. So the way you combat this error is by asking, are you willing to let yourself be irritated by my voice every time? This gives the responsibility back to the person, because as long as you don't take responsibility for your feelings, it is impossible to change. You, the person listening to this, you are never guilty. You are n never ever guilty or responsible of, about how another person feels. You can't make anyone suffer, even though you might think that you don't have the power to make someone suffer. Only that person that is suffering has the power to make themselves suffer. But it feels very good to blame the other person and not take responsibility. So when we're talking about cause and effect, imagine this. You tell me, uh, I can't speak in public because I'm not confident. Imagine this, right? I put a gun to your head and I tell you, you either go speak in public or I shoot. What will you do? You'll go speak in public, even though you're not confident. This experiment shows you that there is absolutely no relationship between being confident and speaking in public. But most people think there is, and that's what blocks them. Do you know how many times I went in front of a public and I had absolutely no confidence in myself? many, and I still spoke in public. It took me a lot of experience and practice to actually be confident on stage and to start feeling good. The third one, the third, the third distortion is complex equivalence. So here's where two experiences are interpreted as being synonymous. For instance, she's always shouting at me, so she doesn't like me. How does her yelling mean that she doesn't like you? Have you ever shouted at someone even though you like them? So this recovers the complex equivalence. So let me break it down a little bit because it sounds uh, a bit difficult to understand. 
We put an equal sign between two things that are not equal, basically. So let's say he doesn't bring me flowers, so he doesn't love me. This is complex equivalence. Does that sound familiar? A lot of women say that, for instance. Or she's always late, so she doesn't care about me. You put A equals B. So how do you combat this error? You ask them, has it ever happened to you to love someone and not bring them flowers? This, brings, this breaks the equal sign between the two sentences. Or, would you prefer them to bring you flowers but not love you? This shows that, that the sentences also can be separated. Or, let me give you another example. Could the fact that he doesn't bring you flowers mean something else other than the fact that he doesn't love you? Okay, let's move on to the fourth distortion. And these are presuppositions or assumptions. And... These are very difficult to combat because 99% of our language that we use is made out of presuppositions and assumptions. And this was an assumption itself, by the way, because I have no evidence that 99% of our thinking is made out of that. So they are so common in our everyday language that we accept them and we don't question them. Assumptions represent everything that we say or think without having any evidence for it. So last week I had an accident. Before I tell you what it was, what did you think about? Right now, when I told you that I had an accident, did you think about the car accident? Maybe that I fell down, I cut my finger. What did you think about? The accident was that I dropped a cup of tea on the floor. But what did your mind do when I said that I had an accident? Your mind, because it didn't have enough information, is starting assuming and filling in the missing information. What is the problem with that? When you make a lot of assumptions, you're not in touch with reality. If I tell you that someone once told me they're... So this is a real case. This actually happened to me. Uh, so this, someone once told me that they're in horri horrible debt. So bad that they can't sleep at night and they cry every day. What sum did you think about? A hundred thousand, a million, 250,000. What did you think about when some, when I say that my friend told me that they're in horrible debt? You know what I thought when they said that? I, I was, I don't know how, but I was completely sure the sum was a hundred and fifty thousand dollars. How did I know that? I felt it. I was so sure. And you know what the debt actually was? $1,800. I almost had to stop myself from laughing when I heard that. And this was an assumption that I made. And these assumptions can be extremely destructive in relationships and in life in general. So... What is the question that we ask to combat assumptions that we or other people make? What is your evidence? These assumptions are extremely common. And what we do is we think our way of thinking and what we believe is how other people believe as well. But this is not correct. Now, the fifth distortion are, is nominalizations. So... Um, so this is a process in which 
words are kind of frozen in time and we make them nouns. So this is when, for instance, you make a verb into a noun. But why is this important? It's because when I see things as a verb, my mind sees a process that isn't finished yet. And pay attention to this because it's really interesting. Well, if my mind sees things as a noun, it sees the end product that doesn't change. So a verb is a process that hasn't finished yet, while a noun is an end product that you can't change. And grammar structures the personality of humans. For example, um, Eskimos have 50, had, of course, in the past, 50 different words for snow. So they have a word for the snow that's on the ground, they have a word for soft, deep snow, they have a word for fresh snow, they have a word for snow blanket, they have a word for fine snow. So they have 50 different words for snow. So the fact that you have so many words for snow enriches the way that you represent and your mental map about snow. So uh, nominal Words represent words such as relationship, management, depression, because all these words stem from a verb, the verb to relate or to manage. And as I said before, if they are nouns, the process is over. So when someone says, I'm depressed, I'm depressed, ask them, what depresses you? Or the relationship isn't working. What in the way you relate to the other person doesn't work anymore? This makes, an in, this makes it an enrolling process in which I can intervene. What in the way that you manage your company isn't efficient? Or you, when someone says, I can't make good impressions. What are you trying to do to impress? I'm scared. What scares you? So I'm transforming everything into verbs. Because depression, for instance... It's very abstract. Abstract. You can't touch it. Your mind places it in your subconscious. And you can only influence something once it's tangible. So this is why you make it into a verb. When you say, what depresses you? The person feels like, okay, so I'm doing something to depress myself. And if I eliminate those things that I'm doing, I can stop depressing myself. But once I say I'm in depression, this is the end product. I can't do anything about it anymore. Now, the third and the last category are deletions. And there are five in total. I left them, I left them at the end because they're easier than the other ones. So the first one is simple deletions. This is simply lack of information. So the mind does this because it, if deletions weren't, didn't exist, we wouldn't be able to communicate, actually. So it's really good that they exist. So let's say someone asks you, I, I call someone, right? And they ask, who is this? So if I, if I didn't have deletions, I would say, hi, I'm Francesca. I was born on the 20th of March. I'm the daughter of uh, X and Y and Z. And I was born in the hospital of da, da, da. And the doctor was this and uh, he has two daughters. So deletions are normal and we wouldn't be able to communicate without them. But the problem is 
that we often delete what we shouldn't. So, for example, um, you need to do that thing. This is a deletion because the sentence doesn't tell you what you need to do. So the question is simple. What do you refer to? What thing? So asking for details. The second deletion is lack of a lack of author. So here the person fails to specify the person doing the action or the thing doing the action. So a lot of kids use this, for instance, the vase broke. So they delete the author of the action. The vase broke by itself, you know. And the question is, who broke the vase? Who is the author? A lot of errors have been made. It's another deletion. Or someone closed the door. And for instance, a lot of politicians use deletions because it takes the responsibility away from the person. A lot of errors have been made in the past, you know. So this is politician language because they don't actually say, okay, but who's responsible for that? Who's the author? Who made a lot of errors? So here is asking for the author. The third deletion is unspecified verbs. So you delete the way in which you get the result. I got annoyed is an unspecified verb. What did you do to get annoyed? What specific steps did you take to get annoyed? What did you think to get annoyed? And this question is extremely important and powerful because the person tells you their strategy to get annoyed. So you, you can find out, okay, what did that person do to get pissed or upset? Well, I had to think about this and you'll find other errors which you can combat once you find their strategy. Also, when someone obtains the result that you want, ask them the same thing. What is your strategy? How did you do to obtain that result? And if they tell you their strategy, this is the most valuable piece of information that someone can give you. Because, for instance, let's say I'm going to give you a really basic example. You, someone makes pancakes and, you know, you like pancakes, you like their pancakes and you're like, oh, you made such good pancakes. Your mental map isn't enriched with anything. You just ate very good pan pancakes. But if you ask them, how did you make the pancakes? They will give you the recipe of the pancakes. And this is when you enrich your mental map. So you can apply this example to anything like business strategy, relationship, happy relationship strategy, whatever strategy that someone has, ask them how. The fourth deletion is comparative deletions. And these are things like better, best, worst, more, less, most, least. She's a better person. Better than whom? Better than what? Compared to who? Compared to what? So let's say you have a client and he says, your service or your product, your product is too expensive. So ask them, too expensive compared to what? Compared to other services or products, they'll say. So ask, how is my product similar to other products? I don't know because I haven't bought it. So how do you, how can you compare them? You know, a lot of times people compare two things that have nothing to do with each other. We compare ourselves to people that we, we don't have the same context. That, you know, we shouldn't compare ourselves because we're not in the same context. We don't have the same resources. So you compare two completely different things that are not related in any way. Okay, so uh, the let's say the car is too expensive. 
Too expensive compared to what? Too expensive compared to some socks, right? This is not a good comparison. You have to compare it to other cars. And the comparison has to be real. So it has to be, okay, if you compare it to other cars, those cars need to have the same features. They need to have, because you can't compare, you know, like a Porsche car with a Dacia car, let's say. Yeah, they have to be realistic. Then... The fifth and the last deletion is value judgment. So um, these are rules that you don't have specific, uh, like a scientific basis for. So these are things like, it's not good to do that, or it's not nice, or it's not normal. So let's say, you know, an example is, it's not nice to talk when you eat at the table. It's not nice to talk at the table. And a lot of people, especially older people, have these rules that limit them. Like, it's not nice, it's not normal, it's not good. So the question to combat them is, who says and with what authority that this is not okay or not normal? What, how do you know that it is like that? Does that make sense? So this was the end of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any questions, you can ask them now or you can DM me on Instagram to ask them. And also, if you have any ideas for future podcasts that you'd like to hear, let me know. So I hope you enjoyed it. Have an amazing day. Bye.